I don't understand why some VCs play such a short game. I understand that you got to get quick wins, but this is a long game. It's a small valley. I understand you have to go, got to work for your interests, but sometimes you can try to find solutions that are good for more than just yourself that are good long term. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Homan Yuen. He's a partner at Fusion Fund, Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm. Fusion Fund invests in very early stage entrepreneurs in many different industries, focusing on industrial, enterprise, healthcare applications. The DNA of the firm is rooted in technology, and the team members have entrepreneurial background themselves. Homan, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Well, very nice to be here and, and chat with you today. In this episode, Homan talks about his experience as an entrepreneur before he became a venture capital investor. He gives specific examples about qualities he looks for in entrepreneurs, and what are some things that gives him conviction to form a thesis around an investment. He also talks about the need for diversity and what we can do to invite more diverse venture capital investors and more diverse entrepreneurs into the ecosystem. Homan, tell us about yourself, starting with where you come from and how you came to Silicon Valley. Yeah, my parents were immigrants to the United States. They came from Hong Kong and ended up uh, in Indiana. So I was born in the Midwest. I'm a Midwestern boy, uh, born in Northwest Indiana. I spent about 10 years of my life there growing up, a small farm town. Had a really good childhood there. And then we came west to California. And then for undergrad, I went to Berkeley in physics and then went to Stanford across the Bay in engineering to get my PhD in both electrical engineering and material science. So very technical background. And to be honest, was really thinking about doing academia or research as a career for most of my life. And then some small aspect of my PhD research in, at Stanford ended up being really interesting to Forest Basket at NEA. And this was around the mid-2000s. Clean tech was hot. I was working on semiconductor lasers, but the same material that you can make a laser out of can also be used as a solar cell. We had demonstrated some interesting results, but at that point, I was kind of thinking about graduating and all that fun stuff. But he approached uh, my PhD advisor, Jim Harris at Stanford, and asked if I was interested in starting a startup company. As I mentioned earlier, I was pretty much thinking just research industry, things like that. Didn't really want to do a startup. I heard how hard it was, how hard it was to be a founder, how hard it was to just run your own company. And to be honest, just didn't want to do it. So I actually turned NEA down several times. And I think that Forrest and others at NEA probably thought I had offers from some other VC firm when it was really just me not wanting to do it. But then I thought more about it, like, hey, this is a great opportunity. I have a good technology. It's a great time in my life to embark on something like this. So yeah, jumped right in, co-founded the company with two other group mates uh, from my research group, Mike Weimer and Digit Sadness. Yeah, that was uh, the start of a seven and a half to eight year stint running Solar Junction. So we developed, you know, the world's most efficient solar cells, broke several world records and have those solar cells installed throughout the world as well as on some satellites floating around space. 
So that was a really fun journey, uh, building the company up from just the three of us all the way up to 1.50 people, raised a lot of money, and then commercialized and productized a technology that we worked on in grad school. So that was a really good experience and then ended up selling the company to the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia in uh, 2014. Saudi Arabia has always been interested in technologies as well as solar and clean tech. And so that was a good exit for the company and investors. And about a year later, you know, when the lockup was ending for us as founders, one of my co-founders went to any, one of my other co-founders went to Coastline. I was thinking about whether VC could be interesting as well. I had some good offers some, from some other VC firms and a new, a good friend, Lu Zhang, who is the founder of Fusion Fund. I've known her since 2010 and she herself had her own uh, medical device startup while she was at Stanford. So she has started Fusion Fund in 2015. And she said, hey, why don't you come over and uh, help me out at Fusion Fund? So I came over and that was six years ago. So I am a full-time partner at Fusion Fund and, and joined her full-time in late 15, early 16. We're the two partners of Fusion Fund. And Fusion Fund looks at companies that have some sort of core you know, technical and data differentiation in the business model in industrial, enterprise, and healthcare sectors. As you can see from the DNA, both the fact Lou and I are both former technical entrepreneurs who have started running sold their own companies, that really lends a lot to the DNA of the firm of what type of company we look at. We're currently investing out of our third fund, which will be a $100 million fund, have over 60 portfolio companies all around the United States. About 40% are actually outside Silicon Valley. And yeah, we have a seven-person team and are always looking at early stage. We write checks up to a couple million dollars, reserve two-thirds of our fund for following capital. And always looking to really help and back technical entrepreneurs, right? Because one of the reasons I think why Lou and I share a very similar mindset and philosophy on early stage venture investing is when we were entrepreneurs, we didn't get a chance to meet that many VCs who were also technical and also had operating experience. It was just hard to sometimes convey like what we thought our business was trying to do or, or what the, the technology itself was worth. And so we had always felt that Software was obviously a dominant business model in the 2010s, but we always felt that technology and hard technology would come back. And so uh, it clearly has. And I think we've been able to work with a lot of our founders to really give them a lot of the insights that a technical company, a technical entrepreneur need versus, let's say, an e-commerce company, a mobile app, for example. Yeah, that's Fusion Fund. That's what we're doing today and uh, always looking to help and support uh, great technical entrepreneurs. Oh, this is great. A fascinating journey from the Midwest with a stint in research through your doctorate. Uh, you considered academia, but you, <laughs> you know, switched to the business side. You shied away from venture capital, but eventually you started your own company and then it came back to venture capital. This is a very interesting journey. I grew up in an academic household. My father is a professor. My uncle was a professor. So I understand uh, some of the things that you had thought about previously. I actually realized that there's more useful research done in the industry in the right places. And I ended up publishing a bunch of patents and inventing many things, which may not have happened if I had continued on the research track at the university. Yeah. I, I, I told some people, like, even though my company was based off of one PhD thesis, I think just the sheer amount of technical work and research that we still had to do to develop a product was probably worth another 30 to 50 PhD thesis in my company. <laughs> which some of it is known and some of it is not known, but that I agree with you. Like, It's not only in academia that really important technical work gets done. 
I'm very curious. You've been an entrepreneur and you are now an investor. When you switch from one role to the other, how was your experience? What changed for you? That is a great question. As you probably know, in, in research and academia, you, you tend to find a topic or an area to focus on and go really deep, like everything about that one area, but maybe not too much about everything else. As an investor, one of the hardest things I had to do as going from a thinker to being an investor was you can't think that way anymore. You actually have to know basically everything as much as possible. Having the change in mindset and even just how my neurons, I think, were wired uh, on, on how to think about things, how to learn things, like and even just how much detail do I need to know about something, learn as much as possible about something. But as you and I know, our time is very limited and you just have to stop at some point. Okay, I know enough about this area. I have to move on to the next thing. That was the biggest thing that I had to really adjust uh, in my, at least, thinking. Yeah, there's more variety in the type of topics that we review on a daily basis as an investor. You don't really have the time to go very, very deep and take the ownership like an entrepreneur does. That's a big difference indeed. What stage do you invest and what do you look for on entrepreneurs? Yeah, we are mostly seed stage. We also do some pre-seed and early series A. I know the names are sometimes ambiguous, but we're looking at companies that are definitely pre-scale, would like to see some customer interaction. Customer revenue is great, but the fact that you've actually talked to a customer to make sure your product actually has some fit, but maybe not full product market fit yet. Yeah, we'd like to see the core team has been built up, in, at least in the early stage. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we look for. We, Like I mentioned, we look for companies that have some sort of core technical advantage, even though the, the technical part is not really what makes a company, but gives you the first leg up. So can you give an example of a startup and tell us how did you meet the founder? What was the first conversation like? What did you ask them? What impressed you? Yeah, one company that's on the top of my mind right now is a company called Optimal Dynamics. They have taken some technology out of Princeton in high dimensional AI analysis. This is the technology that Optimal Dynamics has pulled out of Princeton. And what they're applying to initially is the logistics sector. So it is a decision engine on how to take just thousands and thousands of inputs and how to figure out, you know, how do you optimize your logistics chain? So for example, if I run a trucking fleet, you can imagine there's data like where the trailer is, where the truck is, where the loads are, where the drivers are. I need to have my driver home at the end of the day, but this load from Arkansas is worth more than this load in Tennessee. Where to put all the trucks and the visibility to do that? That's a very complicated algorithm. As supply chain gets more and more complicated, particularly with the rise of e-commerce, just-in-time delivery. These are all very complicated things that you can no longer do on pencil and paper and even Excel sheets. This is where the product comes into play. And Daniel Powell, who is the CEO, I met him, oh, I think it was in October in 2019 when we started raising for a seed round and got to know him over time, visited him in New York, as well as the other co-founder. Very strong technology, very good CEO. He, he definitely is on the younger side, but he's definitely shown to be very quick learner and very aggressive in what he's doing. Been glad to be his seed stage investor and now helping him raise further capital for uh, some acceleration and scaling. That's a great example of a deep technology startup. At what point did you feel like this company really has potential? We were always very interested in the market and what the technology did. One of the biggest questions was how fast customers would adopt this company's product, either partially because of COVID or just where the industry was. We definitely saw the adoption just increase exponentially starting in the fall. And we, we're seeing 
dramatic growth in the month-over-month revenue as well as ARR. There is a lot of interest from trucking fleets to optimize their their operations, for example, and that they realize they need technology, they need software. And digital transformation is one of our themes. This is an industry that typically has been pretty old school. And I think now they're realizing, hey, we need software to at least help us figure out how to optimize our efficiencies. Roughly, how many companies do you meet in an average year and how many investments do you make? I'm really trying to understand the, the the nuances of what makes an entrepreneur go from the first meeting to the second meeting to the final meeting. Yeah, great question. As a firm, we probably meet on the order of 5,000 companies a year. So I'll, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about the fusion fund process. And I, I'm always very open about this with our founders when I first meet them. Just because when I was a founder, it was always as you mentioned, sometimes opaque as to what the process was for each firm and like what the next steps were. Someone from the team will meet the founder for a 15 to 30 minute meeting, partially to make sure they fit our thesis, but more importantly, that our firm actually fits what they're looking for. So we kind of just learn more about them, give an intro to ourselves. Are they looking to raise? Where are they looking to raise? And they give them any useful feedback. So if it looks like it's a fit on both sides, we'll discuss internally with our team if there's interest amongst the rest of the firm. And if there is, we'll bring them in for a partner pitch to meet the whole firm. And then after that, assuming a thumbs up, we'll go into diligence. So from the 5000 a year, we end up investing in about six to nine companies a year. So pretty selective process. And then we, we probably go to diligence with about 50 to 100 companies a year. That's the world we live in. Right? We, we cannot invest in more than a handful of companies, but we do have to meet so many of these companies to get a feel for where the world is going and what the trends are. Exactly. And and even for the ones we don't invest in, we, we do always try to be very helpful with feedback on at least where our concerns were or what they could do. And if possible, try to connect them with other investors. Because as a former founder, I know how hard it is. And sometimes it's literally just timing. As Sometimes maybe a fund is not looking to invest in this area, but another fund is. So I do believe in the long game. I think some investors, unfortunately, in VC don't play by those rules, but I do believe in long game. This is a small valley and it's really always helpful to help other people. Yeah, it is a small world and everybody knows everybody else in the end. So it's good to be a thoughtful player. What are some things that entrepreneurs do that make you say, well, this is it, I'm not interested? Yeah, there are a few things. I understand the need to embellish and, and market yourself and the company, but there's there's a fine line between doing that and just, you know, outright lying about I think what's going on. I mean, I understand like startups are messy, it's even messier in the earlier stages and there's a lot more warts than there are, you know, shiny spots. Can you give an example of not giving name names of companies or people, but anything specific that you can share what really ticked you off? Yeah, I mean, I think I think mischaracterizing how much revenue a company has, the differences between book revenue, collected revenue, and just even interested revenue. I understand it's an early stage company. Like you don't have to be perfect. I'm looking beyond like whether you're at one million ARR or not. For example, being dishonest about that type of information does not build trust. Because through the diligence process, aside from obviously learning about the company, is I think building a relationship and trying to understand, is this someone I can work with and trust? This is is potentially going to be a five to 10 year relationship or more. And I've always told my founders, hey, I don't care if it's good or bad news. Just tell me and we'll deal with it. Never hide information from me and never surprise me. Like I can't help you if you surprise me and it's too late. And that's something actually Forrest asked at NEA told me very early on. It's like, Owen, 
I don't care if it's good news or bad news. Just tell me right away. Don't ever surprise me. It's great advice. I can't help you if I don't know all the details. I understand marketing is one thing, but don't tell me that like you've, you've collected 3 million revenue when it's really only like $100,000 and the rest is just initial conversations. Yeah, I empathize with founders. They have ambitious goals and they make bold claims. And no, it's understandable. They have very aggressive agenda to go out and build great things. But often there are struggles along the way. So when they fall short of those goals, they are embarrassed and they try to embellish. And that doesn't help as an investor. You'd rather get the full story, the honest story, so you can actually help them. Exactly. So it's a it's in the interest of the entrepreneur, especially with not with the whole world, but the few investors who believe in those teams. Uh, it's better to disclose the details and get help sooner than waiting for later. I see what you mean, the managing the pipeline and how you represent the pipeline. It has to be authentic. Exactly. And I've always told our, our founders that we invest in like, hey, text, email, call me anytime. 24-7, right? Because I know <laughs> emergencies can come up at any time. It's, these things don't wait for like the, the sun to rise or the, or the week start to start. So that's just the life that we all live. How have things changed for you because of COVID now that we're all working from home and we don't really meet? A lot, big portion of your work was about meeting people. And now that you're stuck behind the screen pretty much all day, how do you manage it? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I miss hanging out and working with our founders. That's been one thing I miss. Actually going to their companies and just seeing the energy. As a former founder, that's just what gets me energized is, is seeing all that happening. As we talked about, in one sense, it's been more efficient because I can meet more people online, but it's hard if you haven't built that relationship already. And even then, if you've been with the founder for several years, it's just, it's not the same, right? So there's like this trade-off between efficiency versus building like a true relationship or a true foundation for that. But we do what we can. And we also are trying to, trying to work with our founders and how they can improve that process too, because our founders have to go sell product and you're doing sales through Zoom, so there's different ways of doing it and, and how to do it. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully this whole thing is over soon, maybe by summer or the fall, but you just got to adapt with the times. What do you think is difficult for the founders now and how are you able to help them with this Zoom selling process? Yeah, a lot of it is relationship, right? I think that's where as VCs, one of our jobs is to have a pretty broad and strong Rolodex. So pulling it out and opening up to the founders on whatever they need. That's always a easier thing for us to do and for them. And now that you're not able to meet in person, people are really leaning back onto their existing networks. For any entrepreneur or founder who doesn't have that, I understand how hard that can be. So, you know, definitely helping our founders, whether it's other VC intros, corporate connections, even just like basic things like debt providers or, or vendors, just helping them get to the right people. Yeah, it's true. The first six to nine months uh, during this whole COVID thing, we all relied on our old network, existing network. We're getting to a point where we've exhausted that and we really need to refresh our network. And that's just the nature of business. And we have to rely on online methods to build relationships, get to know people and trust each other more without ever meeting. And that is going to be quite challenging. And it, I can imagine it can only be extremely challenging for founders who are starting new. Yeah, I mean, even for us, we, we have invested in six companies last year, most of which were during COVID. 
We have typically met all the founders that we've invested in. I mean, we either met some prior to COVID and went to COVID, or we met them online, but they were either able to be in the Bay Area already, or they actually came to the Bay Area, and so we were able to meet them. Because there's just something about an in-person in- interaction that just gives you many different dimensions of feelings in terms of how are you able to work together, what's their body language, how do they feel about you, all these different things. So while I some ways a fan of the online method and, and Zoom and all these things because it does make things more efficient. I do think there still has to be some component of in-person interaction. So have you invested in startups without ever meeting the founders? Just one uh, so far. And they were already in the barrier, so we knew we can meet them at some point. But yeah, I mean, I was still meeting people this year and last year. It's called With Labs. So they're a remote collaboration software platform. We actually use it ourselves in the, in the firm, but the founders are based in the peninsula and SF, so it's pretty easy for us. I joke, I actually have two lawn chairs in my trunk in my car because I literally just drive to a parking lot and meet people there. So pre-COVID, meeting people in the parking lot was kind of sketchy, and now it's kind of the cool thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's been hard. I mean, like, for example, I have one founder in Pittsburgh, Chetan at Locomation. Uh, they do autonomous trucking, and, and they've had a lot of good successes lately, but yeah, I mean, we, we do Zoom, we do texting, we do some you know, Zoom beers, whatever. It's just, I'm used to going to Pittsburgh and, and checking out his trucks and meeting his team. It's just not the same. But luckily, we had that pre-existing kind of relationship built up that hopefully mm-hmm. it can last for like a couple of years before we need to drink another beer in person again. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Network needs to be refreshed. There's a half-life to it. So we're we're still hanging on to the the network that was established before March of 2020. and that is now fading away and we need to learn to build new network. Are there any pet peeves you don't, are there things you don't like about venture, about other VCs, the way they behave? <laughs> Great question. One reason I think why my partner here, Lou and I bonded actually when we were entrepreneurs is we spent a lot of time complaining about other VCs. We still do, I think in different ways, but maybe as we were founders versus entrepreneurs uh, or, or investors. I don't understand why some VCs play such a short game. I understand that you got to get quick wins, but this is a long game. It's a small valley. I understand you have to go, got to work for your interests, but sometimes you can try to find solutions that are good for more than just yourself that are good long-term. And so I think that's one thing that I don't quite understand how VCs operate in some ways. I also have a similar feeling sometimes I meet some investors who act or think like they're the world's genius on how to operate companies when, I mean, no offense to MBAs, I mean, they only got an MBA and then went to banking and then went to venture. It's not that they don't know anything. I mean, I clearly don't know a lot of, I think, the financial rigor that maybe they have gotten, but there's just something to having been in the trenches and knowing how to deal with, let's say, early employees or how to deal with what I call like, holy shit moments <laughs> and how to be a good investor when things are just going really bad. Like there's no point piling on to the founder, right? Help them find a solution just or sometimes just listen to them. It's a very lonely job sometimes. So I just, I just would wish sometimes VCs would understand like what their strengths are and, and you don't need to be the know-it-all and, and, and tell a founder exactly what to do at some points. Yeah, the MBA investment banking route is great for intellectual stimulation. The horsepower and the curiosity people have uh, and the hard work they do is incredible. But that alone is not sufficient as a venture capital investor. Venture capital investor is more of a relationship business. You really want to take care of your founders and they will take care of the company. Yeah. What tips would you like to give an entrepreneur before they come to meet you? 
you know, I think there's some basic things. And I think on the point I talked about earlier, there's nothing wrong in being transparent about like what just what your company is doing and, and the situation around it. For example, many times founders come to me and they don't talk about their competitors or they don't even tell me actually, <laughs> I know you're coming here for money. They don't tell me what they're raising or why they're raising the money. And so, you know, I expect you to tell me this is, is don't be shy. So I mean, just, just lay out all the facts and totally be open with it. So for example, you know, Vinay Ravuri from EdgeQ, they do a 5G AI combined chip. He he was a, a joy to kind of work with because he's had a lot of experience in industry, obviously working in corporate environments, you have to you know kind of give all the information. And he was just very clear, like, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I need. Here's how much money I need. Here's how much money I need after you. It was very easy for me to see the vision and see what he was really going to do with this 5G AI chip. And you know he's been doing very well. Signed up a lot of large corporates and partnerships with organizations. And yeah, we're happy to see him hopefully uh, over the next few months uh, make some big announcements. Well, this is very exciting. Well, good luck with the new investment. If you were to change one thing in venture, what would it be? I guess it wouldn't necessarily be venture. It is maybe like one step up. It's a little bit more on the LP side, right? I And this is in no way is criticizing LPs. I understand like they have a job to do, but in, in discussions right now about diversity, inclusion, and things like that, as, as an LP, for example, you're, you're judged by your performance, but at the same time, there's all this stuff about trying to fund diversity. But just privately, there's all these diversity funds now, but... I've been told like, oh, well, our LPs told us we should only invest in established managers first. I'm like, that defeats the purpose. You're not funding new diverse managers. I'm trying to figure out how to say this without <laughs> pissing these people off. Yeah, I think what you're saying is that in that value chain, entrepreneurs take the highest risk. And venture capital investors take risk, but not as much as the entrepreneur does. And LPs take far less risk. And the paradigm is changing now where everybody's taking more risk. And LPs need to be more open-minded so they can support new types of you know, VCs coming into the market. You should say that. I don't have to say it. <laughs> you said it very well. Okay. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion recently about how does venture capital help minorities, diverse founders, and things like that. I do think that most VCs do recognize the value in diversity, having diverse teams, and having different thought processes, right? We at our firm, are really big on cognitive diversity. And we understand that helps give different perspectives on things. As you mentioned, entrepreneurs are taking the most risk. VCs are taking some level of risk and LPs tend to be taking, you know, still risk in doing venture capital, but less risk than, let's say, an entrepreneur or venture capitalist. But in order to help push that boundary even further, LPs also need to be a little bit more proactive in really pushing funding diverse managers, new emerging managers, as well as a combination of the two. Because it doesn't, the things don't change if you don't really change where you're putting your money. I understand LPs have a job to do, which is returning capital on capital. But at the same time, I do think that if you're funding a more diverse set of founders, you will grab better returns. I mean, if you look at the recent unicorns that have been formed since like 2016, 51% are minority and immigrants. You have to be targeting these sectors to really improve your returns. And so, if there's one thing I think that could be done better is it's not just uh, VCs, but also the LPs, right? Everyone needs to put more effort and a little bit more risk on funding these groups and, and people. 
Well, this is a very interesting topic. If any LP is listening to this podcast, uh, I hope they become more open-minded and support diverse venture capital investors. Yes. Okay, I want to switch to the last segment of this conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? Yeah, I'm on the advisory uh, council of a fund called the Asian Pacific Fund. It is a nonprofit that uh, helps support various Asian American and Pacific Islander groups around the Bay Area. There is definitely this myth of the model minority myth for Asians, where everyone's successful, everyone's wealthy and well-to-do. I mean, Asian is, means many things. And there's many different ethnic groups, very many different socioeconomic groups as well. And so it's been very useful to help this, this organization because they really help fund and assist many of these smaller groups, whether it's a certain ethnicity, a certain group, a certain type of community. And especially more recently, with the rise in hate crimes and well as uh, hate speech towards Asian Americans, they've really been able to step up and help fund these things. Like, for example, they recently started something called a Solidarity Fund to help combat some of these issues that we're seeing. We've been hearing about you know, elderly Asians in the barrier get attacked randomly. It's just it's horrible to hear. And this is just not you know, not how United States should be operating. I was, you know, very happy to join this organization a couple of years ago. Tom Cole, he, who used to be at TransLink, he's a good friend of mine. He introduced me to the organization and happy to be part of uh, what they're doing. Yeah, it is shocking to see that in the news, that Asian Americans uh, being attacked on the street. To me, it's even more shocking. Not that you would expect different things in other parts of the country, but you would hope that, for example, the barrier, which you know tends to be a much more diverse area than other parts of the country, doesn't have to deal with this as much as other places. And it's really sad to see. And it's just like, what's the point? I know everyone's frustrated with COVID and, and it's, it's been a hard time for everyone in many different ways, but it's just not good to see it singling out one ethnic group. Yeah, that is true. Well, thank you very much, Homan. This is very exciting. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and personal experiences in venture capital. I look forward to sharing your stories with the world. Well, thank you for having me on. And this is a great service you're doing. I also hope VCs can also be more open to founders about how the industry works and how to help them uh, be better entrepreneurs. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.